Open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 6. We have been in a series of messages on the book of Romans, which we have called Saved. Saved. How does a holy God accept an unholy me? How does a God who is perfect and who cannot be in the presence of sin, how can he accept me, someone who, from the moment he has been able to choose, has chosen his own way? I have been a sinner my entire life. How can that happen without God doing something along the lines of either changing the rules or ignoring something important? And something that I've realized as I've been studying this book in, in preparation for the day is that it's impossible. It is impossible for God to accept me if that acceptance is based upon how well I've done. And I would apply the same to you all as well, that it is impossible for a holy God to accept unholy us if that is based upon what we've done. And no matter what we do going forward, it's not going to make up for the fact that we have defied God and that we deserve punishment. But we've been going through this process of how we're saved. We have our umbrella here, okay? It makes us think of, you know, long for summer, but okay. We have this process of how we are saved, how, how Jesus was the propitiation for our sins, how Jesus took the penalty of our sin upon himself. And then we have imputation. We have how he imputed his righteousness onto us so that holy God can now accept unholy us because of the holiness of Jesus. And then we have our justification, we, have our, we now have the penalty removed from us, so we are, can stand justified before Christ. But beyond that, we have reconciliation. It's not just that you're okay, now stay over there. It is bringing us into his family, that he is engaged with us, that God wants to be a part of our lives, that he wants to be in, have an act, this active role in, in there. And this is all governed by this amazing word, grace. God's unmerited favor toward us. Grace that you did not earn, Grace that you never could earn, but grace that God gives us freely as a gift. And part of what I dig about God is that we don't have to play. We don't have to hold up pretensions. We recently moved. We're in a new neighborhood. I'm trying to get to know new people. I am terrible about this. Some of you could probably testify to that. I am awkward in meeting new people. I don't know why I'm a minister when it comes to this, but uh, I find myself trying to, when I'm meeting with strangers, I try to justify why I deserve a place in their consciousness, all right? I try to talk about my job, my, you know, my family, my, my hobbies, you know, for whatever I do, and God doesn't play that way, is that we can stand before God and just be ourselves, a broken and depraved people in need of a Savior. So if the question of Romans is, how are we safe from our sin, then chapters one through five, what we've come through so far, they create an answer, and that answer is Jesus, Because what Jesus did overcomes what we can't. And now we reach a turning point, which I find a little refreshing. Okay, sometimes I think the book of Romans is like a theological bazooka, all right? It is thick. There is so much there, but this book is essential for the walk of a Christian. And it's so important for us to grasp. Now, I think of this. Last January, this was my first month here. It was towards the end of it. I was still doing the half and half thing. We hadn't sold our house in Illinois yet. So I was spending four days a week here and three days a week uh, down back in Illinois with Carrie and the kids. And I was here on a Friday night, and Jordan said, Hey, uh, going over, we're going to have a Die Hard marathon. Just guys, we're going to you know, eat junk food and watch Die Hard. I'm like, That sounds awesome. All right. And so I was a little bit late. I think they were 
I think they had already finished Die Hard 1 when, they, when I came. But I walk in, and this is the first thing I hear. I hear Eric, the youth minister over Comstock, saying, oh, yeah, I read Romans that way, too. <laughs> I'm like, why isn't Bruce Willis blowing something up right now? What's going on? And I said, you guys realize this is exactly what people think you do all day, is just talk about, you know, Romans. Okay. But even at a random social event, the book of Romans came up. I think it is impossible for us to overstate the importance of this book. So we come to our text today. I'm just going to read our text. Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So today we talk about freedom. How does the grace of God give us freedom from sin that doesn't want to leave us? Because, because we are justified in the eyes of God, what do we do with this sin problem that we still continue to have? Our propensity to sin, our appetite for sin. And when we get to Romans chapter 6, Paul asks a question, and I'm using a bit of a turn of phrase here, but what he's asking is, does grace now make our sinful actions irrelevant? I mean, if we say to you from this stage that Jesus, by his grace and by his death on the cross, and by the power of that sacrifice that all of your past sins are done away with, then what difference does it make how I live moving forward? If he can forgive my past, then why can't he forgive the things that I'm going to do in the future? And I think it's a fair question. In fact, I think that if we present this gospel of grace, that this question is going to get asked. If my sin no longer matters because of God's grace, then why can't I just continue to live the way that I want to live? And while this question is fair, it's based on the wrong understanding of grace. I texted Jordan last Sunday night that he set me up perfectly for this morning uh, because he shared a story from the Bible that I'd already planned on sharing. Uh, it's amazing. It's like we we're drawing from the same material or something. But uh, <laughs> he shared the story of the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair, who she actually washed her, his feet with her tears and was drying them with her hair and poured him out with this, this perfume. As Jordan talked about, that this perfume represented her only dignity in life. She was a sinful woman in that this dignity belongs on you, not me. 
And it was this beautiful moment. And when Jesus was getting criticized by the teachers and Pharisees about, don't you know who this chick is? What are you letting her do? And he tells this parable of, of a lender who has two debtors, one who owes 150000 one who owes 15000 And uh, he forgives both debts. Now, who loves the lender more? The one who owes 150000 said, yes, you got it right. The one who had larger debt forgiven. So Paul asks us in Romans 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Oh, wow, this didn't format right. Okay. All right, there you go. All right, we'll just keep it on this. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? I mean, if we love God because he's gracious, then how about we sin more so that he's even more gracious and that will make us love him even more? I mean, let me rack up this debt as high as I can get it because that means I'm going to love God so much. And verse two, by no means. This is very emphatic language. Some of your translations may have, God forbids it. It's ridiculous. It's flummadiddle. Flummadiddle. It's, oh, balderdash. Yeah, that's one. All right. I like that word too. All right. It's ridiculous. And Paul continues, we are those who have died to sin. Please remember that phrase. We have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? I listen to a lot of different podcasts and different radio programs and There's this mischaracterization of Christianity that absolutely makes me cringe. When people think that being a disciple of Jesus means that you can just live your life however you want because Jesus paid the cost of your admission into heaven. That people think that that's what being a disciple of Jesus is about. And it drives me crazy because when we hear about being free in Christ, we think that it means that we're free from hell. And that's just such a poor understanding of this. I've been intentionally reintroducing a hymn over the last few weeks, a hymn called Rock of Ages. And the the lyrics of that hymn really speak to me. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath, make me pure. The double cure. The double cure is saved from wrath, which is our sin problem, Make me pure, our sanctification moving forward. We have two issues. We have to deal with our past sin, and we have to figure out how to live this life with God well. And we call it the double cure. It's the penalty of sin, and it's the power to overcome sin. Now, sin does not end the moment that we're saved, right? I mean, I think we can all agree. That's like the biggest duh I could ever say from the stage. Is that I don't, I've never met one person who said, oh, from the moment I was saved, I never sinned again. Liar. <laughs> now you're back with the rest of us. Okay, good. We have a double problem. We have the penalty of our sin, and we have the power of sin over us. And in Jesus, we get the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. In Jude, verse 4, it says these words, and I want you to notice this description. They are godless men who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The author of Jude is saying that it is a godless person who we've been singing about, I want us to be focused on this morning, who would look to Jesus on the cross and say, excellent, great, now back to the way I used to live. It's ridiculous. Rubel Shelley was a preacher in Tennessee, and in one of his sermons, uh, he was also, he's an author, he wrote some books, he was a professor at a, or president of a Christian college, and in one of his sermons, he used this illustration that really resonated with me, so I'm compelled to share it with you. And now imagine that each of you, imagine that you own a restaurant, all right, 
And because you're a God-fearing person and you want things to be right, it's a buffet, all right? You have, you have prime rib, you have chicken, you have you know, these fresh baked rolls, and you have mashed potatoes, you have, you have the occasional vegetable so that it appears healthy. Uh, but it, you also have cakes and cookies, and you have fresh baked pie with ice cream to serve with it because, you know, this is the way the Lord would have it, all right? And so you have this wonderful restaurant, and you do really well with it. I mean, people love your restaurant because you have good food and that you treat your customers well, you treat your employees well. And so you're working one day, you're making a really good living for your family, but you're going out one day to take a bag of trash out to the dumpster. And you open up the door to the dumpster, and there's a man in there. He's sitting in the dumpster eating out of a trash bag. And your heart's just broken, and you reach out to him and said, please, please don't do that. In fact, listen to me. Morning, day, or night, any time that you're hungry, come into my restaurant. It's not going to cost you a dime, all right? Morning, noon, or night, just any time. We have chicken, we have fish, we have steak, we have anything you could all want. You can even have some pie. You know, please don't eat from, don't, don't eat that. And the guy just looks at you stunned. And you think maybe he didn't hear you, so you just repeat, no, seriously, I mean it. Anytime you need food, please come in. I'm happy to feed you. You can have anything that you want. And he just looks at you and he says, I can have anything that I want? He said, yeah, I mean it, anything you want. And he gives you the most sincere look and he says, can I still eat out of your trash? And that's the point of Romans 6. It's the heart of the question. Are you really asking God if you can continue to eat out of the dumpster instead of eating at his table? You see, it's grace over garbage. It's not grace for more garbage. It's Romans 6 encapsulated. The question is not, how much can I get away with and still get into heaven? No, the question is, how far can I get away from my sin because of heaven? And so Romans 6 paints this picture for us. Back to verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Like we were talking about before, this is our participation in the story. Paul gives us this image of uniting with Jesus. It's uniting with him into his death, and it's also uniting into the resurrection. It's a marriage ceremony, if you will, where if where we profess our belief in what Jesus did on the cross. Not just belief that Jesus' sacrifice covers us. In baptism, we are owning that phrase, dead to sin, dead to self. Notice these terms that Paul uses here, that we must choose to die, that he who tries to save his life is going to lose it, he who loses his life is going to find it. This whole concept of death here, baptism is a symbol of a believer's solidarity with the death of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that for many of us, baptism has many different connotations based on our backgrounds. But I want to share with you this image that Paul uses in Romans 6 because the beauty of baptism is reinstated. It's not about church membership. It's about solidarity with Christ. In 2005, a really pretty girl walked down an aisle and stood before God, a preacher, and our parents, and, all, and a whole bunch of our friends, and she made a commitment to me, as I made to her, that we would be married and we became solidified together. It was no longer Paul and Carrie, it was Paul and Carrie, or as my nephew, I think he was three at the time, used to call us Paul Carrie. He, 
he couldn't use it. Yeah, I know, he's cute. Uh, marriage, it wasn't two individuals anymore. It was a public ceremony that declared to the world the commitment that we were making to each other. And Paul says that baptism does that same thing. Don't you know that when you were baptized into his death, you were also baptized into his resurrection? The reason that we have this giant tub here at our church is not just because it is not because you this is how you become a part of ODCC. It's because this is a beautiful moment where you can enter into God's kingdom and avow before all of your friends and family that this is what I am doing. I am being buried into the waters, so and I'm going to rise out of the waters, cleansed and new. But I want to be frank for a moment here. Uh, if God was truly just in baptism, then wouldn't we just be dunked under the water until there are no more bubbles? I mean, if it were simply going to be death, then it would be okay for God to say, because of what you've done, I'll forgive you after you're dead, but you're going to have to die, so I'm just going to drown you, all right? I mean, God would be just in saying that. But what makes baptism beautiful, listen to this, it's not just being plunged beneath the water that's beautiful, it's his permission to come out of the water, Like Jesus walked out of the tomb, we walk out of the baptistry. And that's the beautiful part of this baptism. It's my statement to the world. The statement I made when I was walking back down the aisle with Carrie's arm in mine. She's my wife. She's none of yours. She's mine. And I'm her husband. I know she lost the deal, but I'm happy, all right? And we walk out of here, we have a covenant relationship with Christ. And baptism is a beautiful image of dying and saying, I want to die to the sin in my life. I want to be buried like Jesus was. And I want to walk out of the tomb like he did. And I'm being cleansed at the same time. This is a beautiful, poetic picture. Let's not lose its beauty by arguing over its chronology. Romans 6, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives He lives to God. See, what Paul just did for us, he says that death no longer has any mastery over Christ. He defeated death. We will all physically die, but by the power of Jesus Christ, he will raise us again. Right? That was the name? Amen. Yes? Okay. All right. Now, we have to get this right because this is a fundamental belief. It's like playing football with a soccer ball. It's not going to work if we don't get this right, okay? If we have been made alive in Jesus, we will only die the one time. And after that, we will live forever because the life Jesus lives, that we unite with him, he lives to God. So if we're going to be buried with Christ, we should arise to live with Christ. Remember, many of us get stuck in thinking that as long as we're not going to hell, that that's what it means when we say saved, And when God has so much more for us, he's saying, quit eating out of the dumpster. Come to my banquet table where everything that you ever could possibly need is going to be given to you in lavish amounts. Live for something better. So the comparison is that we've been cleansed from the penalty of our sin, and we've also been given the power to overcome the grip of sin, which is the power of Jesus, the power of the Spirit. The penalty and the power. It's the double cure. So Paul then goes into two images that can be a little confusing, but when you see what he's doing with these, you can find the freedom in it. 
So we talk about being dead and alive at the same time. There's an interesting comparison here because how can I be dead and alive at the same time? Romans 6, 11. So you also must consider yourselves. Consider yourselves. It makes me think that there's something to do with your mind. You have to put conscious thought into this. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So when we talk about freedom... It's not just the freedom from the penalty of our sin. It's the power to live in that freedom to not sin any longer. Since we have been buried with Christ in baptism to arise to newness of life, we should live and consider ourselves as alive, no longer dead. And we all know there's not a believer in this room. I'm going to count on some of you veterans of faith to testify with me here, is that not Every day, there's a struggle to walk back to the dumpster and take a look in there and see if there's something good. Am I right? Every one of us has to struggle to stay away from the dumpster because sin, there's something intoxicating about it. Something about sin and that instant gratification that if I just have this one thing, that I will, I will feel exactly the way that I want to feel. And we need to break free from that. Part of God's promise is the work of this Holy Spirit in our lives The work of the Spirit is going to allow us to overcome that intoxication, but it's going to take a long time. And it's part of God's maturation process for us in that he's going to give us the strength to say no, that you are no longer a slave to sin. You can sin if you want to, but why would you want to go back to the dumpster? Why would you go back when God has all these better things available to you? Sin is seductive, and the Holy Spirit gives us the power to no longer be seduced. So I'll explain it a little differently. Now, if your life was a story, we all have sometimes when new chapters are being written that change the narrative. If you think of an event in your life that changed, it could be something like discharge from military service. You know, for four years, six, eight, or even 20 years, you were told where to go, where to live, what you needed to do, and how you were going to do it, all right? And so when you got out of the military and you returned to civilian life, you gained some freedoms that you did not have for a long period of time. And it was a unique situation for you. Maybe it's graduating from college, you know. uh, Mom and dad aren't helping you pay the bills anymore. Nobody set a four-year cycle of what you're going to be doing. And so now you have to find a job. You have to find where to live, who you're going to live with, and it's, it's something different. You know, marriage, if you can't think of your own, just think about how different it is. You know, I was a you know, disgusting 21-year-old when I got married, but, or 20, I don't know, 22, but anyways. Uh, but then I had to figure out how to live with a girl as much as I liked her. It was, it, it was different. I grew up with two brothers. It was really weird. Anyways, uh, but, you know, birth of a child. I mean, I'm still very young in my walk as a parent, but I'm already at this point where I can't remember what it was like not to have a kid. And uh, the changes that brought it was good, but it was a big change. And not all of them are positive. Maybe it's a cancer diagnosis. You lived your entire life thinking you're perfectly healthy, and now you have to live in this new reality knowing that you're not. Or loss of a job. I mean, I could go on and on. There's, there's these moments in our life when a new chapter began, and you realized this new chapter started. I'm no longer living in the old chapter. 
and Paul's saying is that baptism is one of those new chapters. You have your pre-Jesus reality, now you have your post-Jesus reality. And there's a beautiful part of entering into this new chapter with Jesus, and that's that many of the decisions that have been made in your past are no longer relevant, nor should they be enticing, because we have the double cure, saved from sin to make us pure. You see, once we were seeking power, but now we're seeking God. Once we were working to be good so that God would bless us, and now we are doing good things because we're already blessed. Once we were looking for ways to please ourselves, and now we're looking for ways to please God. But Paul says, count yourselves, consider yourselves, think about yourselves as dead to sin. And I know that this sounds like psychobabble to some of you, but if you read your scriptures, you're going to understand your mind is massive in your faith. What you think about, we read, think about what is good, what is noble, what is pure, what is right. What you focus your mind on matters. That's why we talk so much about how you need to study the word of God, how you need to spend time in prayer, because we need to focus our minds on these things so that we can always remember why we hated the dumpster. To be reminded of all the good things God has in store for those who will walk by faith. So we have this confusion of being dead and alive. I'm dead because of my sins, but I'm alive because of Jesus. And when this body walks through the portal of death, I will be made new in the presence of my God. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Because death is the price that you will pay for your sin. Grace is God's unmerited favor, and it is the price that Jesus paid to gift it to us. Which one do you want to trust to provide everything you want, to provide everything you need? Do you want to choose sin and death, or do you want to choose grace and life in Jesus? What a contrast. And Paul is painting this picture to answer this question. If God is going to forgive my sins, and I can't do anything to earn it, then isn't he going to cover everything I'm going to do? So does it really even matter how I choose to live? And Paul says, you're asking the wrong set of questions. Yes, grace will forgive you of your sins because God is faithful. But would you not, wouldn't you want more than just to not go to hell? Wouldn't you like the power to overcome sin now? Church, do you want to stop eating out of the trash? I don't believe that there's a person in this room today, whether you're a veteran disciple of Jesus or if you're still even just thinking about it, there's not one of One person in this room who will not agree with this one thing, that we wish we would have lived our lives better. We wish we would have made better choices. We wish we would have been honest with our own souls about the consequences of the choices that we were making. And yet, from the time I was very young, and my parents laid before me the gospel of grace, and our our home church supported that teaching. I had so many incredibly patient Sunday school teachers dealing with me as a little monster who reinforced this to me, saying about, teaching me about this grace. But I knew from the time I was very young, and I wasn't too young, not at all, but I knew that I had a problem. I knew exactly what I had done. And my problem was that I didn't want to go to hell. All right? And I knew that my sin was going to punish me, and it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an accounting error. If God set aside everything that I had done wrong that I didn't know I was doing wrong, I still deserved punishment. And I was convicted of that. And I made a choice to tell my parents that I needed to repent, that I needed to confess Jesus as Lord, 
and that I needed to live for him and not for me. And I was baptized in my home church. And here at ODCC, we are adamant about baptism. And I want to be really clear about what I'm talking about because I'm going to ask each one of you, have you made a decision to solidify yourself Have you made this decision to unite with Christ and to make this new chapter? Now, I'm not questioning whether or not you love Jesus. And I'm definitely not questioning whether or not he loves you because that's not relevant to me today. What's relevant is that when I read the book of Acts, when I read the New Testament, you're not going to find anybody who didn't make a decision for themselves. Some of you were sprinkled as a child, and that's beautiful, okay? Your parents, your godparents, your, uh, your family came around, and they sprinkled you, and they had the service in the church to dedicate your life for Jesus. And to say that we're going to teach them, we're going to raise them in the church to know Jesus. But there comes a point in all of our lives when we walk here on earth, and each one of us has to stand up and say, I make this choice for myself. The reason that we put you completely under the water here is not because we want to be better than others. We believe that to be buried into the water, to be buried in the water, to walk out of the water cleansed, that when you read that in the New Testament, immersion is the mode every time. And so we encourage every believer, if you are sprinkled as a child, we're not saying that you're not genuine in your love for Jesus. We're saying that there's another beautiful act of obedience to Jesus Christ where you allow yourself to say publicly, I want to die to sin and live for Jesus. And as I am entered into death, I come out of the water being cleansed and new, having done exactly what he wanted me to do. In Acts 2.38, which is the day that the church church began, Peter preached this message about who Jesus was. And he laid out the facts that the sin of mankind caused Jesus to be murdered. And somebody in the crowd called out, what must we do to be saved? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you notice what took place there? The double cure. Remission of your sins, forgiveness. The gift of the Holy Spirit. The power to overcome sin in your life so that you can live for God. One of the things I've always loved about pretty much every church I've been a part of, maybe not so much when I was growing up, it was uh, before they learned how to be you know, silly, but when somebody's baptized, there's no decorum in the room, all right? Someone is baptized and they come out, out of the water, we don't sit here you know, with the golf clap, yay, you know? No, we have hooting and hollering, we are clapping we are so excited but the thing is i've never been in the birthing wing of a hospital and seen someone walking in the room oh i see you've had a child very well done all right no if someone's telling me that there's a new baby uh, travis and ashley they get new babies when they're uh, fostering and i'm like sweet i want to hold it all right i get it for about 10 seconds before my wife steals it from me but there's a new baby I'm, i'm excited we celebrate because new life is the reason we exist But I want to talk to you, to those of you today, even those who have already been immersed. It's time for us to get past the one part of the cure. It's time for us to move beyond just being forgiven and living out our freedom to the glory of Jesus. Amen? We die to ourselves, but that's not the end. We die to ourselves so that we can live for Jesus. Because at the end of the day, we need him. And every one of us needs to know he brought the solution for the penalty of our sin. And he brought the hope to overcome the power of sin. I need that. How about you? If there's a decision you need to make, if there's something you need prayer for, 
there's anything we can do for you, we invite you to come down, speak with Jordan or one of the elders as we stand and worship our Jesus.